Everybody dies, don't they? Everybody comes back, don't they? Isn't that so? You tried to get into the locked drawer today, didn't you? How do the dead come back, Mother? What's the secret of the dead come back? The Catacomb by Peter Shilston. I'm retelling this story as it was retold to me. Imagine, if you can, a coach making a tour of the island of Sicily in the middle of August, carrying a couple of dozen English package holidaymakers on the usual lightning inspection of places of interest. Palermo in two days, Agrigento in another two, Syracuse meriting only one, a trip by chairlift up Mount Etna and then home. The sort of people one finds on such tours are invariably the same. A number of school teachers, earnest retired couples, parents who have inappropriately brought children and are beginning to wonder why they didn't save themselves trouble by going to the beach instead, and a handful of single, unattached people. Furthermore, their behaviour is always the same. Some spend all their time grumbling at the quality of the hotels and food. The young men wonder why there are no available attractive young ladies on the tour. The children get bored and the school teachers carry guidebooks and maps around everywhere and take enormous numbers of photographs. Others seem to show no interest in historical sites at all and spend all their time either sitting in the nearest cafe or buying various unpleasant souvenirs. This particular coach party was a typical one, I think. Among its members was a certain Mr Pearsall, a quiet, a solitary, middle-aged man of vaguely scholarly appearance. He had enjoyed the tour and had been duly impressed by the Greek temples of Agrigento and the mosaics in the great cathedral at Monreale. But he hadn't managed to make close friends of any of the other passengers, and now that the holiday had only a couple of days left to run, he was looking forward to getting back home again. Consequently, he was mildly irritated when old Mrs Tavistock in the back of the coach started to complain of stomach pains. She had been something of a moaner throughout the tour, but now she was looking genuinely ill, with the result that Giuliano, the courier, had to ask the driver to stop in the next town so that a doctor could be brought. The next town turned out to be a nondescript settlement nestling beneath an enormous cliff, with little apart from this huge, overshadowing presence to distinguish it from any one of fifty other small towns that they'd already passed through on the tour. Here Giuliano went in search of a medical man, leaving his charges dozing, idly reading their books or making desultory conversation. It was mid-afternoon and the sun was blazing fiercely. All sensible Sicilians were indoors having a siesta. Shutters were down on every window and not a soul was visible in the street. After a while, Giuliano returned and regretted to inform them that they would have to wait at least an hour for Mrs Tavistock to receive attention before they could proceed. In the meantime, they could get out and stretch their legs, though it was unlikely that they would find anywhere open. The coach would sound its horn to call them back when it was time to go. Here he engaged in an animated conversation in Italian with Umberto, the driver, who made many emphatic gestures the upshot of which was some more unencouraging information. The local people, said Giuliano, kept themselves very much to themselves and there were really no facilities for tourists at all. No coaches normally stopped here and there was little point in trying to explore the town. Really, it had nothing to offer. He expressed his regret again and had a few more words with Umberto. Mr Pearsall's command of Italian wasn't great, but he seemed to detect the phrase can't come to much harm if they're all together. Mr Pearsall, however, did not intend to stay with the others as they stood around on the pavement in a pointless fashion. He had glimpsed a church down a side street as they drove into town. It had looked old and surprisingly large for such an insignificant place, and he thought it might just be worth an exploratory visit. The harm Giuliano had mentioned, uh, assuming he'd understood him right, he took to mean thieves. They had been warned to beware of bag snatchers in the major cities, but it was hardly likely that gangs of muggers would bother to patrol a town where no tourists ever stopped. The streets seemed absolutely deserted. Besides, Mr Pearsall was still quite fit, and imagined he could hold his own against the average thief, or at the very worst, run fast enough to get away. So taking his camera, he imparted his intended destination to a fellow passenger who showed not the slightest inclination to accompany him, 
and set out at a brisk pace. The side streets of the town were very narrow and ran steeply up the hill towards the great beetling overhang of the cliff. Some of them had steps in them. Mr. Pearsall wondered how claustrophobic it would be to live beneath that great black shadow, and also speculated whether the town was ever damaged by rockfalls. After a couple of turns into dead ends, he found himself in a little gravel-strewn square, as devoid of people as the rest of the town, and facing the church itself. A glance at the sun told him that he was approaching it from the west end. The southeastern corner of it almost touched the base of the cliff. Because it had exactly the same colour and texture as that towering mass, the church gave the slightly disturbing impression of having been carved by the hand of a giant in a single piece out of the living rock. His first sensation, Mr. Pearsall tells us, was of great age and general dilapidation. The church looked far older than the Doric temples at Agrigento, which he had admired earlier in the week, though his intellect told him this couldn't possibly be the case. He supposed it must be a Norman building, though possibly on an older foundation, Arabic or even Roman. The style was typical enough, though rather ill-proportioned. Two squat heavy towers with hardly any windows, and those very small, flanked a portico of three large pointed arches. What little decoration there had ever been was now barely discernible. There seemed at one time to have been fresco paintings inside the portico, but now the plaster was badly cracked and in some places fallen away entirely. Only a few dim outlines of human figures, presumably saints, could be discovered. There was a large wooden door, decayed and worm-eaten, with panels carved in what had been ornate abstract patterns. Moorish influence, said Pearsall to himself, and tried the door. It was locked. This was predictable enough under the circumstances, but still annoying. Mr Pearsall retreated to the square to take a picture, and then looked at his watch. A mere fifteen minutes had passed since he left the coach, and he still had plenty of time to kill. The day was hotter than ever, and if there were any shops in his godforsaken place, they were resolutely shut. He decided to stroll round the outside of the church for sheer lack of anything else to do. Besides, he would be in the shade for part of his walk, and it would be cooler. Without any great enthusiasm, he set out. He was a mild-tempered man, but if there was one thing that caused him irritation, it was suddenly finding himself with nothing whatsoever to do when he had expected to be occupied. Along the south side of the church, the shuttered houses ran so close that the street was more like a tunnel. He hadn't gone far when he noticed a small side door. It should cause us no great surprise that he tried to open it, and much to his gratification found it wasn't locked. Surprised at his good fortune and congratulating himself on his persistence, he went inside. At first there was nothing to be seen, so dark was the interior after the savagery of the afternoon glare outside. But soon Mr Pearsall's eyes had grown accustomed to the gloom, and he was able to look around him. He knew at once that his walk had been worthwhile. In his tidy fashion he began to classify what he could see. A long high nave with aisles on either side, clearly another Norman church, with the pointed arches learned from the Arabs. But unlike some of the others he'd seen on his visit, this church hadn't been revamped later on in the Baroque period. There was not a Corinthian pilaster to be seen. The capitals of the columns seemed to be a mass of grotesque carvings, but were so thick with grime that he couldn't distinguish them clearly. Indeed, the whole interior was very dirty. The pews were thick with dust and the candles so discoloured that they looked as if they hadn't been lit in years. Clearly they weren't expecting visitors for there was not a guidebook or a postcard visible anywhere. Then Mr. Pearsall saw the mosaics. He had already been initiated into the marvels which the Normans had bequeathed to Sicily in this field, in such staggering compilations as the cathedral at Monreale and the Palatine Chapel in Palermo. But even so, the examples of the art on display at this out-of-the-way place quite took his breath away. Here, some nameless craftsmen of the 12th century had taken the Byzantine style and interpreted it with a vigour and a liveliness that were all his own. A veritable poor man's Bible of astonishing power covered the walls. 
Mr. Pearsall quite forgot the passing of time as he followed the treasures on display. Here was the creation of the world in a sequence of seven pictures, and there were Adam and Eve tempted by the servant and expelled from paradise. More scenes followed, Cain murdering Abel, the building of the ark, the drunkenness of Noah, the Tower of Babel, Abraham and the destruction of the cities of the plain, the sacrifice of Isaac, on and on, each one more startling than the last. How odd, thought Mr. Pearsall, as he moved from scene to scene, full of wonder and admiration, that the inhabitants of this town should discourage tourists. Here they had some of the finest mosaics on the island, if not in the whole of Italy, and yet they were left to decay out of sight in a locked and dirty church. Why, with just a little initiative and energy from the town's authorities, visitors would surely come flocking to see such marvels. Did they object to the very idea of tourists? Surely there were enough prospective cafe owners and postcard dealers in the place to insist that something was done. And why was the church not mentioned in any of the guidebooks which he had read so assiduously before starting on his tour? Such were the musings that passed through Mr. Pearsall's mind. But after a while, he began to have doubts. It became noticeable that though the artist had great natural vigour, it was the portrayal of evil which called forth his finest efforts. The serpent in the Garden of Eden, for instance, was given a human face that bore a sinister and seductive leer. In the story of Cain and Abel, there was no doubt that it was Cain who was intended as the hero, for Abel, as he lay helpless on the ground, was a mere hapless simpleton, whereas his murderer, standing over him with a spade raised to cleave his skull, was full of savage power. King Nimrod's soldiers at Babel looked like mindless automata. The picture of Saul and the witch of Endor was situated in the darkest corner of the church, perhaps deliberately, and was covered with cobwebs. After examining it closely, Mr. Pearsall was almost glad of this, for inside the witch's cave were certain unpleasant, non-human shapes that were perhaps well left unseen. Perhaps the artist was a Manichaean, mused Mr. Pearsall. A Cathar or an Albigensian, or are they the same thing? Have I got the dates right? More convinced of the existence of evil than of good. Perhaps his mosaics were condemned as heretical. But in that case, why weren't they destroyed instead of just closing the church down? Now, I wonder what he's made of the New Testament. These mosaics were even more unsettling. Mr. Pearsall couldn't find an annunciation or even a nativity, but it was a quite horribly realistic massacre of the innocents, in which a number of ingenious and disgusting means had been devised of slaughtering the children, whilst King Herod sat on his throne overlooking the carnage and laughed. The portrayal of Judas receiving his thirty pieces of silver from Caiaphas would have stood out as one of the artistic masterpieces of all time, were it not so exceedingly unpleasant. And so it progressed through various nasty portrayals of people possessed by devils, through the stories of Simon Magus and Ananias, both of whom once again were the most vivid characterizations in their particular scenes, right up to a terrifyingly powerful portrayal of the four horsemen of the apocalypse. By this time, not only was Mr. Pearsall distinctly upset by the mosaics, but he was feeling increasingly ill at ease. At first, the church had been completely silent. But as time went on, it seemed full of little noises he couldn't locate. His footsteps echoed round and round in a long diminuendo but they seemed to be answered by odd rustlings and creakings. No doubt these were the normal sounds of rodent life or of aged woodwork at the start of its death throes. But when, like Mr. Pearsall, one is alone in an ancient church in the middle of a strange town, where not a single human inhabitant has yet shown his face, and when furthermore, one is surrounded by the most disturbing illustrations of biblical evil. Such rational explanations carry distinctly less force. Once or twice he held his breath and stood perfectly still to see if the noises continued. Not only that, 
he also increasingly felt that he was being watched. Probably it was only the faces in the mosaics that caused this, but on more than one occasion he thought he saw a movement right in the corner of his field of vision and whirled around in alarm, only to find nothing. Finally he came to a Virgin Mary who was quite devoid of the usual serenity, but instead had the voluptuousness of a vampire. So appalling was her expression that he thought for a while she must be a portrayal of the scarlet whore of Babylon. But no, she had the posture and the usual clothing of the Virgin, and there in her arms was the Christ child, a hideous infant with an oily and sanctimonious grin which put Mr. Pearsall in mind of a satiated appetite for something perverse. He shuddered and was filled with a sensation of such acute distaste that for a moment he quite forgot the noises. All this time he had avoided looking at the East End, intending to keep till last his viewing of what was always the glory of the Sicilian churches, the great figure of Christ in the apse above the altar. Now he could keep from it no longer, and turned his gaze in that direction. It was indeed a masterpiece, in spite of the dirt and the cobwebs that encrusted it. As usual, Christ's head and shoulders were portrayed robed in red and blue, the right arm extended in blessing, the left holding an open book lettered in Greek. The treatment of the material by the unknown artist was marvellous, but the expression on Christ's face was uniquely horrible. A malignant sneer of contempt. The eyes were very piercing. Mr. Pearsall couldn't read Greek, but he suspected that the words written on the open page of the book were hardly a normal scriptural text. And the right hand, was that the usual gesture of blessing? Or was it the first and last fingers held up the gesture known as the devil's horns? This is a blasphemous church, said Mr. Pearsall to himself. The mosaics may be very fine, but they are also very horrible. Some bishop, perhaps even the Pope, condemned them and had the church closed down. Even the townspeople don't like to talk about them because they are still a very religious people, and they don't let tourists in. Just as well, these pictures are enough to give anyone nightmares. Well, I'm glad I've seen them, but it's not a pleasant place to visit on your own, and I can't say I'll be sorry to leave. He glanced at his watch and was almost relieved to find that his hour had practically expired. It gave him an excuse to leave without exploring the rest of the church. With a brisk walk that an unsympathetic observer might have thought perilously close to a panic-stricken run, he turned away towards the south door by which he had entered. But now it was locked. For some time Mr. Pearsall struggled in a quite futile fashion, shaking the door twisting the iron ring this way and that, searching for a catch, but he was entirely unable to shift it. He thumped the door with the palm of his hand and kicked it, and a great ringing boom echoed round the church like a salvo of cannon fire, and to this day he swears that from somewhere there came a kind of sinister chuckle in answer. With a considerable effort he pulled himself together. This is stupid, he told himself, there's probably some custodian who forgot to lock the church up before his siesta and only realised his mistake when he woke up. But he must be a very careless or stupid man, or he would have checked to see if anyone had gone inside. All the same, he didn't want to knock again and risk that dreadful echo, so he decided to search for another door that might be open. Logic suggested that there should be one on the north side, perhaps opening to a cloister or something similar. Crossing the nave with a certain trepidation and carefully avoiding a glance at the blasphemous figure of Christ, though he imagined he could sense the cruel eyes bearing on him with an almost tangible force, he went in search. Sure enough, there was a door in the corner of the north aisle, and it wasn't locked, though it seemed a long time since it had been opened. A strong thrust was needed to shift it, and it groaned horribly as it swung inwards, dislodging a shower of dirt. A peculiar, musty smell seeped into the air. Mr. Pearsall found himself peering at a flight of worn stone steps running downwards into the darkness. Now, 
This didn't look like the way out at all. Indeed, the smell suggested that the lower chamber, whatever it was, was completely sealed from the outer air and had been so for a very long time. It was a most unpromising route for one wishing to leave the building, and to this day, Mr. Pearsall has never been able to give a satisfactory explanation of why he decided to descend those steps. He was already late, and after the unsettling effect of the mosaics, most of his exploratory zeal had evaporated, but nonetheless he could not resist the lure of the doorway. He wondered afterwards whether he was in full control of his movements anymore. The whole place bore a distinctly sinister air, but still he had to push the door fully open and take his first tentative steps down into the darkness. The stairs were long and curiously dank in spite of the dryness of the climate. Soon all trace of the light of the main body of the church, which had itself seemed so gloomy when he had first entered, had been lost, and he was obliged to take his cigarette lighter from his pocket and proceeded by its flickering illumination. He turned a corner beneath a glowering archway of uncut stone, descended a ramp, and gasped at what he saw. It was a catacomb. A long corridor opened before him with side passages running from it. Perhaps the whole area beneath the nave was covered, and it was inhabited. A long double line of human forms stood along each passage. All ages and classes had their representatives here, men and women and infants, monks and warriors, learned scholars and ladies of fashion. They were dressed in clothes that must once have been their finest, furs and silks and embroidered gowns, now sadly mouldering and decayed, but bearing still a glimmer of their former glories. And they had faces, for clearly much ingenuity had been expended to preserve the bodies, though with mixed degrees of success. There was a girl-child whose clothing looked at least two hundred years old, but who from her skin and hair might just have fallen asleep. But beyond her, a man in priestly robes who had lost his nose and his cheeks and his eyes had decayed to blank, milky globules. And further on, the soldier in the chaste steel breastplate, who was perhaps a mercenary from the Renaissance period, had lost his flesh entirely and now grinned mindlessly with a naked skull. Poor Mr. Pearsall. The effect would have been quite nasty enough under bright electric lights and surrounded by his fellow tourists, but here, on his own, locked in, and after already being alarmed and upset by those hideous mosaics, and furthermore with just a single weak flame to protect him from the darkness, the shock was overwhelming. Quite why he didn't turn and bolt, he's never managed to explain. He takes refuge in mysterious talk of feeling a call which dragged him onwards. Certainly it is irrefutable that he walked on down the passage, through the grisly ranks of the dead, horror mounting within him, but quite unable to save himself. All the bodies had been there a very long time. Mr. Pearsall's knowledge of the history of costumes was not great, but he was fairly certain that none of the garments worn could be placed any later than the middle eighteenth century and the majority seemed to be medieval. What was left of his rational mind told him that similar catacombs were not unknown elsewhere, but such a piece of information seemed extraordinarily useless. As he walked onwards, he appeared to be moving back steadily in time towards the early Middle Ages. Very few of the faces had any flesh on them by this time. Some were left almost naked with their clothing in flimsy rags, and others had simply fallen and lay in heaps on the floor, but still he had to go onwards until he reached the end. He had lost now all sense of direction, but suspected he was moving beneath the altar, beneath the Christ of the devil's horns blessing and the malevolent glance, and here was the centre of this labyrinth of death, a great throne of gilded wood, much rotted, where sat a body, clad in the gorgeous robes and mitre of a bishop. This much Mr. Pearsall took in at a distance. 
but as he drew near, he wouldn't look at the figure directly. He tried to force his eyes to look only at the slippers. He was sure he would lose his reason if he looked higher, but he could not fight as a force stronger than his mind raised his head gradually higher. The gold-embroidered cope, the skeletal hands with the episcopal ring loosely enclosing a bony finger, the crozier propped up in the other hand, the bones of the face bare of all flesh, the grinning yellow teeth, the eyes, the eyes, not decayed at all, but alive, piercing, glaring, my God, the same eyes as Christ in the mosaic, the lighter fell from Mr. Pearsall's nerveless grasp and he plunged into darkness. It was a lighter of cylindrical shape and he heard it roll tinkling away out of his reach. For a few seconds he scrambled uselessly on the floor for it, then realised how pointless such a search was. He would have to find his way out in total darkness. How far was it? How many turns had he taken? He waved his arms in front and to either side, walked a few paces, touched stone, turned, walked more until he met another obstacle, turned again. It was at this stage that he began to hear noises again, a horrible, dry rustling, which he would have loved to think was a rat. It came from behind him. He moved quicker and walked slap into one of the bodies. His face buried itself in the rotting fabric and he felt the lifeless arms slump across his shoulders. His nerves snapped entirely and he screamed. A muffled noise quickly extinguished. He ran at random, hit another body and ran again and struck again. Corpses were collapsing all around him, but still there was a rustling and a padding and a dry, gravelly cackling behind him. And it too was moving, not fast, but soon it would reach him if he couldn't find the stairs. He fell and cut his hands and screamed again, but not from pain. He lost count of how many times he smashed into obstacles until, bruised and bleeding, he could go no further and cowered back against the stone wall. The rustling was quite close now. Light, he must have light. He'd lost his cigarette lighter. He had no matches. Frantically, his hands searched his pockets for a miracle. Of course, he had flash cubes for his camera. With trembling fingers, he pulled one out and fiddled for what seemed an eternity to fit it in place. He pressed the shutter button and nothing happened. A dud. He turned it round and tried once more. Still nothing. The rustling was only inches away. Think, man, think. He'd forgotten to wind on the film, so of course nothing would happen. Pull round the winding lever and try again. Just time... He must have fainted. But when he awoke, it was bright daylight and he was lying on the back seat of the coach. Giuliano was leaning over him. The courier had been told where Mr. Pearsall had gone, and when he failed to return on time, Giuliano and Umberto had gone to the church to find him. Entering by the south door, which, by the by, they emphatically denied was locked, they heard his screams from the crypt and saw the flash. They found him without much difficulty. He was within a few yards of the steps. Giuliano was more relieved than annoyed, but he chided Mr. Pearsall for disturbing the bodies in the catacomb. Banging into them in the dark was careless and destructive, but as for deliberately dragging one body all that way from its resting place, and it being the body of a bishop too! Mr. Pearsall didn't have the strength to argue. Everybody dies, don't they? Everybody So that was The Catacomb by Peter Shilston. It was recommended for me to read by Rob Berry on September the 3rd, 2021. Now, you know I've got a spreadsheet where I methodically, and if you know me, you'll know how methodical I am. That was an ironic comment. And I've got like, uh, when it was recommended, who recommended it, the name, the author, and I have some little notes. And the note beside this says, Rather petulantly, I thought, can't find for free. 
too hard to get. But yes, dear listener, I did get it. So this story, Peter Shilston, I've tried to track down Peter Shilston. And if you if you actually Google him, which is the way we look for everybody these days, there is a Peter G. Shilston who has a blog. I don't think it's him. Uh, and then there's just the only references to Peter Shilston are to this story, particularly the catacombs. It was so it was first published in Ghosts and Scholars. So Ghosts and Scholars was a fanzine, if you remember those, edited by Rosemary Pardo, who edited a lot of ghost stories in her time for stories that were in the spirit of M.R. James. And I think you can agree that this was kind of bookish dude goes wandering amongst ruins, finds something blasphemous and horrible, has rather a shock, but it all turns out all right. This is your classic M.R. James, isn't it? Most of the heroes of Monty's work, they come out of it all right. Whereas, um, of course, in more modern, generally, uh, horror fiction, they don't come out of it all right. But, you know, in Monty's day, they did, and I think this is written like this. So Peter Shilston had written this one. He did another one for Rosemary Pardo in Old Johannes or Johannes. So this was a fanzine that came out in the 80s that she produced, and it's got those kind of lovely drawings on that I remind me of sort of my Dungeons & Dragons manuals from those days when I was a young lad. This is early 80s. Now, let me see if it says when it was produced, because obviously, real 86, this one. But the version I've got is the best of Ghosts and Scholars. So and this one was from more Ghosts and Scholars. So it goes back to the early 80s. Now, it was picked up as a one of the year's best horror stories by a guy called Carl E. Wagner. He was an American chap, so he possibly pronounced his name rather barbarously as Wagner. But I guess it's his name, so he can, he can pronounce it. And we once even though he is wrong. I mean, I remember going to Russia years ago and they'll call me Mr. Valkyr, Valkyr. Okay, I'm, not, I'm not called Valkyr. The L is silent. But, you know, I'm like, it's my name. I call myself what I want. And they just kept saying Valkyr. There was a, there's a story about that, how I got interrogated by the KGB, but that's for another, and that is a true, true story. But um, oh, that's for another time and place. Anyway, back to Peter Shilston. So there's not very much known about him. If he's listening, first of all, I hope he doesn't mind me reading his story. And if he does... Just send me an email and uh, I'll withdraw it. I will. I'll withdraw it. Yeah, how about that? I'll be like a British Prime Minister and I will resign for doing something wrong. Oh, no, they don't do that. So anyway, ha <laughs> political. Peter Shilson wrote this story. Now, why is it a, a good story? Discuss. It's got a really nice shape to it. It just goes from A to B to C to D to E. Uh, it, it runs really nicely. It's, it's well written. Now, what, what I will say, and I hope Rosemary's not upset, the editing, there were a lot of typos in it, and I had to go back, oh, no, that's not right. And there were some kind of mistakes, like Mrs. Tavistock at the beginning, whose only function is to become ill, was Mr. Tavistock. And that threw me when they started. He and I go, Mr. Tavistock. And then she was, I'm going, oh. So I'm sorry, Rosemary, about that. But I know how hard it is to pick out typos by the eye alone. When I'd done a story, I, you know, I'd throw old word and grammarly and all these checkers. And then I'll um, look at it and I'll see all the red lines. I'll try and correct those. And then I'll read it out. And, and you pick up a lot like that, but you still don't pick them all up on the first reading because I've gone back to stories I've read before a couple of times and I still find mistakes of words in. Uh, so there were a few in this, but that's not Peter's fault. So why is it a good story? Well, I told you it progresses nicely. And I thought the tour group, I've been on tours like that, was so well described. And that was, that was actually really novelistic, that. that. That is what the people who judge books would say, oh, that was very well, very well observed and described about the tour groups. I thought that was a really nice little opener. And he sets a scene of Sicily, and there's, there's that kind of, you know, I, there's a commentary about it saying how, how consumable it is. You know, we go to these places and we go to these ancient places and we have two days to do it and we suck it all in. We take loads of photographs. Worse these days. Of course, in those days, he had his real camera with these little flash cubes on. Not flash bulbs, notice. So that dates it. Do you remember flash bulbs? was one. You put them in, boom. My dad had those. He also had flash cubes whereby you, uh, where it went click, click, click. I think there were four faces. And then you had a, a film and you had to get that. And then when I ever got them back, they were all badly done, but I used to be so excited and then I get the photographs back and they were rubbish out of focus and big streaks of light over them and everything. Anyway, so that dates it particularly. But I don't think it, it it's harmed by that date. I reckon, what, sometime in the 70s, do you think? 
maybe late 70s or so. So if you've got a, you want to make people scared vicariously, the readers, you take your protagonist who represents them, their avatar, and you put him in an uncomfortable place. You sequester him, you cut him off from all sources of support. So this is it. He's, he's in this horrible place. It's big. Nobody knows where he is. Well, one person knows where he is. And that, of course, is the setup for him being found because otherwise we'd go, well, how come they found him? But just one little sentence to say he told the person next to him who wasn't much bothered. But, you know, that leads us to not be surprised when he is found because otherwise we would have gone, that's outrageous. How did they know where he was? But Peter's a good enough writer to do that. You know, I think it was well written, so I'm not knocking it at all when I say good enough. I mean, it, it was a good story. Uh, and then, so we put him in a horrible place and then we pile on the, the loneliness, the damp, the dark, the dead bodies. Who likes dead bodies? Who likes wandering in dark, lonely places on their own? He's got no light. We remove the light. We make it dark. Again, human primal fears of the dead, of the dark, of lonely places, of being on your own. These are just primitive human fears. So he piles them all up. We've got about four or five of them that I've just listed. And that would be bad enough, wouldn't it? And then he adds this blasphemous thing in. Now, that's really interesting because I'm old enough to feel that. And I was brought up in a, in a Christian culture. Even though I'm not a practicing Christian these days, I do have a lot of time and sympathy for, for Christianity. But although I'm, I'm not, I wouldn't call myself a Christian. But I'm, I'm enough I'm culturally Christian to, to recoil from the blasphemy. I'm like, oof, I don't like that. You know, and I think certainly in the 1970s, most people... Now, I wonder what the younger godless generation, in every sense godless, that I've got a single one apart from... <laughs> this is what old men do, isn't it? Rant about oh, young... Seneca apparently used to go on about the, young, the youth of his day. But they're very spiritually impoverished. Let's just leave it at that. They're spiritually impoverished. They've got nothing much in this world apart from banal materialism, I mean. Anyway, go oh, blimey. Go on, shut up, Tony. Yeah, I felt that, and I didn't like that. And then there is that, the Dennis Wheatley, remember in the in the 60s and 70s, certainly in the UK, Dennis Wheatley was writing his black magic books, and they were definitely, they were they they were um, Christian black magic, you know. They were, they drew on a Christian worldview of the devil and, and God, the devil and evil spirits, you know. And it is, it is orthodox, isn't it? That this is what's going on, some kind of holy war. Although... Of course, in Orthodox Christianity, the devil is only allowed to do what he does under God's um, sufferance for God's own purposes. God is omnipotent, omniscient. And this is, of course, the real problem for Christianity, the problem of evil. But again, let's not go into that because there'll be people unsubscribing. He's a Yorkist and he's talking about the problem of evil. And so he's just lost a load of subscribers. And I'm so sorry. But I'm actually, I'm not, I'm not attacking that. I'm saying I'm in sympathy with it, really. I, I feel it. And then we have this diabolical creature who, again, in blasphemous way, is a bishop and he's got the ring. If we think of the apostolic succession, which, of course, you know, is the fact that bishops are supposed to be from St. Peter. Jesus Christ gives Peter the keys and he becomes his regent on earth. And Peter passes that blessing down from bishop to bishop to bishop to bishop. So the the current bishops, I think, you know, like the Patriarch of Constantinople and the Pope of Rome, are, and all bishops, in fact, descend from that unbroken, in theory, probably possibly true, that Jesus, St. Peter, and all the way down. So the fact that the bishop is this monstrous undead thing is is, again, a blasphemy. So I think those are the... The causes of why it's so horrible is the blasphemous thing which will affect people of a certain generation, although possibly not young people who don't have that um, attachment or knowledge even. It's certainly in the UK they don't. In certain quarters, I'm guessing some schools they do. But by and large, a lot of young people these days know nothing about Christianity, really. So they don't get that. I think I've made that point. And then we have the, the being on your own, being on your own in the dark, being on your own among the dead in the dark. And there's also also a little side trip to rats and vermin. So they're there as well, which again, we find very unpleasant. These are primitive fears added to the cultural uh, revulsion from the blasphemous stuff. I think that's how it works. And it's a Monty James. Monty does this as well. He has these features as well. Although this is clearly a 1970s story rather than like an, an 1890s story but pretty much otherwise similar. 
quite successful. There we are. That's what I've got to say about it. More stories to come. Now, remember, I'm getting these in the can in advance because I'm going camping. I'm going to be away for about 12 days. I'm hoping it doesn't rain. Um, a lot of people say to me, we really like your rambles at the end when I talk about dogs and cats and the weather and Sheila doing this and uh, what I've had for my tea. And I, I kind of, I've got two things to say about that, really, probably more, knowing me. One is, it reminds me of, what's his name? I want to say Peter Cook, but it wasn't. A letter from America that I used to listen to when I was a kid. Alistair Cook. Peter Cook was with Dudley Moore, wasn't he? So it's not him, it's Alistair Cook. Now, when I was about 10 or 11, my grandfather, my beloved grandfather, gave me an old radio, and I would an old transistor radio, and I would listen to it in bed at night, and I would turn the channels. And you can probably date it from what I like to listen to. So I remember um, Simon and Garfunkel uh, feeling groovy, there's such a such bridge song, been on. I loved that. And uh, Galveston, oh, Galveston. I loved that. And I'm a rhinestone cowboy. So these were the kind of songs that were coming through. Do-do-do, the cobblestones. Yeah, great. And also, uh, Alistair Cook's Letter from America, I listened to. There was something about, it wasn't so much what he was talking about, which was interesting. It was his voice. It was his measured tones. It was his urbanity. He was a very cultured, thoughtful man. You couldn't imagine him being mean-spirited. He wasn't mean-spirited. And he was thoughtful. And he was just so lovely. And so I think there was something very relaxing when you had somebody as cultured and, as I've said, urbane and also kind and serene as a voice. You're thinking, well, the world can't be that bad a place. It's in good hands. Later, we learned that that wasn't the case. But for me as a young boy, maybe 11, 12 years old, that that was very reassuring. So I think me rambling on about Shade the Dog and the Cat and uh, what's the weather like and did I go shopping, I think it's a kind of a poor man's version of uh, Alistair Cook's Letter from America. Letter from Carlisle. It's been mixed weather today. It's been mixed weather for a couple of weeks. We have sunshine and it pours down. I took shade for a walk the other day. And uh, we, we, it was raining all day and then there was a break. And I thought, well, we'll go out because she needs to go out. So we went out and there's a, there's a river behind us and there's this flood defense bank. So we walk along there and suddenly it starts to hurl it down. And she, <laughs> she it was like she'd been assaulted. She, she, she just went wild. She doesn't, she's a very thin dog and doesn't have a lot of fur. So... She start, ran headed back home. We hadn't gone very far. And I'm going, Shade. And then she she sees me straggling behind her, a long way behind, hurtles up to me at high speed, jumps up with her front paws, bats me with her front paws, turns and runs again. And I guess that is to say, hurry up, old man. And so then I hurry up and I find her sheltering under a tree and then we have to go in the back car and I'm struggling with the lock and she's like looking at me. But she loves me though. And she forgave me because she gave me a lick later on. But um, that was she was really funny the way she behaved. But I hope the weather improves. A couple of years ago, pre-COVID, we went up to the, the West Highlands of Scotland and the weather was absolutely glorious. It was one of the best summers we've had for a long time. We were camping. We, we were, you know, about three years younger. And we went to Sky and everywhere. Oh, it was delicious. I mustn't say delicious. It wasn't delicious. It didn't taste of anything. It was delightful. It delighted me. So I'm, I'm hoping when I return to Wales, where I haven't been to Wales for many years now, and as you know, I have a big, strong attachment to Wales, I'm going to go around. I'm hoping that's going to be nice, and I'm hoping that it doesn't rain because it, in and out of the tent. And I like to fit a lot of places in. We're going We're going to go down to, to Shropshire. We're going to look at some hill forts. We're going to stay near Bishop's Castle, which is gorgeous, camp there. Hopefully go to Shrewsbury, where my girls were born, actually, in the hospital there before we went back to Wales. And um, Shropshire Hills, Ludlow. I've just done a recording of a Shropshire lad possibly related to that. And that I will see light at some point. Because I'm, I'm thinking of doing a classic poetry. I used to be really into poetry because I like words. And I'm, I'm thinking of doing a classic poetry channel. I've, I've done a couple of items to see how it goes. I was going to do a poems for summer compilation. See how that goes. Might not go at all. I always like to try new things. Leads me to remind me, you may know that there are other channels like mine uh, on YouTube. 
I'm not sure they exist as podcasts as such, but the issue with podcasts is they don't really make any money. You can't earn money directly from a podcast. So if you do a podcast, you're reliant on the good wishes of people. That's why I do that coffee thing. You know, people buy your coffee and that kind of pays for the cost of the hosting. And also, you know, if you do all right, it can it can actually buy your coffee as well as buying microphones and blah, blah. So, you, but you don't, unless you get a sponsor, the issue with being sponsored as a podcast is you can end up with sort of, rubbish things you know like the classic ghost stories podcast now a word from our sponsors domino pizzas off it. I thought, oh, i don't want that or you know i thought i tried i reached out as they say i've got to say there are a couple of americanisms there are a lot of americanisms that i really like so reached out is an americanism step up to the plate is another one and call out he called them out and they're kind of very vigorous Rather than using Latin words, they're kind of a combination of the proper English phrasal verbs. And so I really like them. So I reached out to Cafico Pens. They're a German company that makes really nice ink pens, or pens of all sorts. And when I was down in Oxford some years ago, pre-COVID, pre-COVID, everything's pre-COVID, I went to this fantastic stationery shop, very elegant, swellegant, and very lots of lovely dinky things in, so almost like a mini Hogwarts. And uh, I got this pen, which cost me at the time, don't tell me, it cost me 50 quid, which was an enormous amount to pay for a pen. But I've never taken it out of the house. It lives in a little tin box. In the morning, I write my bullet journal with it. Um, anyway, I reached out to them because I thought, they, oh, it would be lovely if they... I've got a Lamy pen as well, which is also nice, but not as nice as my Cavaco. So I thought, well, I'll reach out to them. They would be good. Nah, not interested. Reach out to uh, Audible. Nah, they, they'll... they'll flipping support anybody but not me yeah i was denied so and i was thought it'd been very germane really but who do what do i know yeah if you had the right sponsor be good but otherwise the whole point is it's very hard to make money from a, a straight podcast without you know patreon works buy me a coffee coffee work and i rely on those really from the podcasting point of view apple have monetized the podcast so i can do special members only on apple and that brings a, a little bit of money in, um, not much. But but hey, don't knock it. I think it's about 30 quid a month. So, but it's all right. And then YouTube. So YouTube, they give you advertising revenue. So if you've got people who are members of YouTube, YouTube Premium like me, you don't, you don't see any adverts. So that's definitely worth it. I don't have any affiliate link so i'm not getting any money out of that from suggesting it i just think for me it works and it depends on how much money you've got spare and, and your priorities you may feel that heating your house and eating are more important than youtube i don't know crazy but the people who don't and get the the adverts a, a proportion of that advertising comes to me i don't know how much probably not much but it still mounts up if you're getting thousands of views now a little thing out of kindness if you just let the adverts run for two seconds I get paid. I think if you just blam them out for, before, I don't. I don't get anything. So if you know, if you get like a mattress advert or a team Microsoft Teams advert or something, something you may not be personally interested in, just let it run for two seconds, and uh, that'll help me out. However, leading to the point, there are a couple of channels like mine. There are a number of channels like mine. Of course, we think of Horror Babble, the great Horror Babble Ian Gordon, huge, fantastic, loads of videos, done every story into the sun. Great production qualities. I mean, he's a, a lovely. I've got I've got encrypted horror with Jasper Lestrange, much smaller channel, smaller even than mine. I don't know why, but his videos are lovely and his voice is good and everything he does is great. So there's those. And then, of course, there's a big beast like the Sherlock Holmes story. Then there's bite-sized audio, Simon's bite-sized audio. And both of those have been demonetized. And YouTube, in its algorithmic insanity has said they're using reusing content which of course they're not because they read the stories themselves they edit them themselves they do the artwork themselves so it's not true but when they've gone back to youtube and presented evidence the great algorithm goes no you use reused content and the, so they've lost their income stream and because they were both much bigger than me that was probably a living for them whereas i still got a proper job which is a mixed blessing. I mean, it's a mixed blessing because I'd rather not have it because I'd rather do this all the time. But but uh, if if YouTube suddenly decides about me for some insane reason that probably isn't factual, they're, gonna, they're not going to give me any advertising money anymore. Well, I'll still be okay. I'll still be able to feed Shade and Sheila. Imogen's coming to stay tomorrow night, so that'd be nice. 
I think we're going to go for a pizza after she's been to work. I know I'm moving Catherine tomorrow, so I've hired a van. I'm, I've got to get up early tomorrow, get the van, long wheelbase, and help her. And I'm going to take my electric screwdriver so I can undo her bed. And I'm very excited because dads love to help their daughters. If I had sons, I'd love to help them as well. But they wouldn't need me. Oh, God, that's sexist, isn't it? But anyway, I don't want to offend anybody, but it's a lovely thing. And I'm glad that she knows I love doing it as well. So I'm going to see Catherine to move her house. And I'm seeing Imogen, who's working at the museum, doing some arts and crafts stuff later on. We might go for a pizza. I may have a beer also. A brew dog. I like brew dog. Anyway, not to detract from the seriousness of, of those two fine people losing their livelihood, with it, which I think is a shame. I had a similar thing. There was a time when my writing was, was actually a bigger part of my income. It still is a little bit, but it's, it isn't by any means a living. It was more important. I was selling more books then. And Amazon, who I was selling them through, suddenly decided some bizarreness that I wasn't the author of. And I'm like, I, no, I am, though. I, they demonetized me. They were going to ban me. And I'm like, oh, my God, this is, this is a big chunk of money. And it was nonsense, you know. But these huge companies are like gods. They're massive. And they Google, Apple, Amazon. They basically do what they want. And if you are hanging on their coattails and earning a living from their largesse, and they suddenly robotically decide for some bizarre infringement, they're going to cut you off. That's you down the pan. So that's why I still go to work um, three days a week. I'm going to cut my other two days a week. I was working privately for doing some psychiatry stuff private. I'm not doing that anymore. So I can focus on this. Anyway, there you go. Those are the rambles. I'm going camping tomorrow before I do it. I'm moving my daughter. I'm going to have shade on Monday and Tuesday. We'll have a lovely time. Shade and I are very big pals. Everything in my life's pretty good, really. I'm surrounded by love. I hope you are too. Okay, bye-bye. Isn't that so? Isn't that so? Isn't that so?